welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 241. Our guest is Corey Jacobson. If you're into elk hunting at all, you've probably heard of Corey. He runs elk101.com, has numerous video resources, has a podcast himself, has been on many podcasts, including ours in the past, and is always a wealth of knowledge. In this episode with Corey, I really wanted to get his take on your questions. So I looked at what are the recurring questions that we get? What are some of the current questions that you guys have about elk hunting? And I wanted to get Corey's take on that. So in the past, we've talked with Corey a lot about calling and calling setups and strategies, and there's not as much of that discussion in this episode. This episode covers other topics on e-scouting, on locating elk in the field, on how to deal with hunting pressure, and a whole lot more. A really interesting question I was curious to hear Corey's take on as well was what's changed? So you take a guy like Corey who's been hunting elk for decades. What has he seen change not only in the past decades, but honestly the past five years? Because the game, in my opinion, has changed. Elk hunting has changed even just in the past five years. And I wanted to get Corey's take on that. We also talk some rifle season strategies. So it's not all early September stuff, not all archery. We get into later seasons and rifle discussions as well. Guys, I hope you enjoy this one. As always, we thank you so much for tuning in. A couple things before we dive into this episode. Corey has the University of Elk Hunting online course at elk101.com. It's truly a great, comprehensive, A to Z resource, whether you're brand new to elk hunting or you are experienced and you're looking to gain more success in the field. I truly can't recommend this resource enough, not only because it's good quality content on a few topics, but because it's good quality content on nearly anything you can think of when it comes to elk hunting. Again, e-scouting, picking a state, picking a spot, tearing apart a unit, calling, what to do after the shot, like it's all covered in there. There's a link in the show description below, but you can save $20 on that course when you use the code EXO20, EXO20, you can save 20 bucks on the University of Elk Hunting online course. Again, a link in the show description below. There's also going to be links to some of Corey's other resources in terms of his video series and things of that nature as well. Guys, just want to mention as well, if you're interested in any Exo Mountain Gear pack systems or anything like that, there is still time to get set up for season. So just go to exomountaingear.com, check things out there. Give us a call if you have any questions. We would be happy to personally help you out if you have any questions and make sure that you get what you need for these upcoming seasons. Guys, that's enough of that. Let's dive right into this conversation with Corey Jacobson. Corey, welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast, or I should say welcome back, man. It's good to chat. No, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, and anytime we can bring up uh, the topic of elk, I'm super excited. Yeah, no, it's always fun to talk to you. And, uh, you know, it's that time of year. A lot of guys are 30, 60 days, some even less out from hunting season. And, uh, yeah, it's elks on the brain for sure. It was just for me personally, it was super weird last year not hunting elk. Um, you know, we had those couple trips to Alaska. And so I feel extra anxious this year just to like get into September <laughs> after having a year off of being in the elk woods. So I'm, I'm just personally excited. Um, yeah, I mean, in this podcast, we just kind of want to hit a, a bunch of listener questions with you, Corey, and see what your thoughts were, mm-hmm. um, try and uh, categorize some of them a bit. And obviously, there were some some duplicates, uh, themes and things like that, that, uh, that popped up when we uh, asked for feedback. But, you know, one thing I wanted to start with, and this came up again from a listener question, but I thought it was super interesting. Um, this guy had been hunting elk for five to 10 years, and he just thought... Uh, what is different? What do we see different now in terms of elk hunting than we did five or 10 years ago? And so I'd just love to hear your perspective on that. Almost a little call it state of the union if you want, but like what's, what do you see is different now than five to 10 years ago, specifically in elk hunting? And then you can take that any way you want to take it. <laughs> I was going to say, man, my, <laughs> my head's spinning here thinking of, of which way to go. Um, you know, I, I think, for me in Idaho, and I know people in Wyoming and, and Montana and other places, the whole wolf debate, which we've talked about a lot. But I think, you know, in the last five or 10 years, 
Um, maybe not a lot's changed then. I'd say in the last 20 years it has. Uh, but I think we're starting to see um, some gaining some ground there a little bit, maybe, you know, some positive. Uh, the, the wolf population is still, it'll always be out of control. There's no way we'll be able to, to fully stay on top of it just because they're, they're prolific. They're prolific hunters, they're prolific breeding animals. They're, they're just hard to manage correctly. And so that's always going to be a challenge. But I think with, uh, with hunting seasons, with the uh, fishing game agencies, doing their best to manage all of the game animals, which, you know, in areas that are hit harder by the wolves or the, the deer and the elk are struggling, I think they're getting in and, and doing a good job of keeping those in a better balance. And I think we're seeing some of those effects. We're starting to see elk uh, in places where maybe the last 10 or 15 years we hadn't seen them as, as consistently. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful there. You know, I think for a while it was kind of discouraging that, man, wolves are just ruining it. Wolves ate all the elk. Don't come to Idaho because there's no elk left. And, you know, there's, there's still, it's not like it's the, like it was, but uh, compared to 10 years ago, I think, I think maybe there is a little, little light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and then the other thing, you know, I think just from a, I wouldn't say political landscape, but, uh, you know, the non-resident debate, I really think we're starting to see, um, some drastic changes on the horizon that are going to affect, uh, us hunting out of state. You know, we, we live in Idaho it's really easy for us to look at everybody who comes to Idaho and, and label them a non-resident, but you know, we're all non-residents in 49 other States and I like to go and hunt other places and it's getting harder and harder. You know, Wyoming talked about, they had a, they tried submitting a bill this year to increase tag fees again for non-residents and reduce the number of tags available. Uh, Idaho next year is reducing the number of tags to non-residents and increasing the price uh, we're just starting to see a lot more of it that, Hey, we've got to take care of our, our residents. That's who the animals actually belong to. Yeah. It's public land, national forest. Anybody can come here and enjoy the national forest, but the resources, the, the wildlife belong to the States. And I really think, uh, you know, we're starting to see a lot more of that. I think it's going to be a, a hardship for, for hunters overall, I think. Mm, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think? Is that just, the resident hunters pushing back against fish and game, asking them to, to not allow more non-residents in or is fish and game have some motivation? I don't see any reason why they would be uh, inclined to reduce non-resident numbers because they're, you know, obviously making more money from them. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's a, a great question. I think it does come from the residents just, you know, we were in Oregon last year and somebody left a note on, on our rental truck that had Washington plates and said, go back to Washington or, you know, you aren't welcome here, whatever the note said. Uh, I know there's a lot of people. I heard the argument in Idaho for a long time last year. Um, there's getting to be more and more non-residents every year. But that's that's not true because the non-resident number of tags has been capped for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing is in certain areas, non-residents are being uh, – I don't know, funneled there somehow, whether it's through information, whether it's through fishing game, um, directing them there when they call it. I don't know where they're being directed to those areas from, but I think we are seeing more non-residents when they do their research end up in the same area. And so those areas are getting uh, more densely populated with non-residents. And I think that might be people in certain areas like that are, are complaining that, hey, you know, we live yeah. here and, and our hunting's being ruined by non-residents. And, you know, it's sad because that's really, no matter if it's Idaho, whatever state it is, it's going to divide the hunting community that you live in this state. So you're not a part of us. You don't fit in here. And it's going to become more difficult for, for all of us to hunt anywhere other than our home state. And for those who don't have elk in their home state, um, that's, that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's uh it's going to be interesting for sure. I mean, you you can talk about just the non-residents over the counter stuff. You can talk about the issues with uh point creep and what what happens in other states that have those types of systems. Obviously, Idaho uh doesn't necessarily have that issue, but there's for sure changes um that are just going to have to happen. Uh and there's there's just always a balance there, right? Like in the end, more hunter numbers are good in so many ways. 
Um, and I think part of what you hit on there, Corey, is like figuring out how to not have certain areas, certain seasons too congested um, where there's too many negative effects, but still at the same time, try to balance that and provide opportunity. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the next few years unfolds there. We had a related question to that was um, this guy, again, kind of assuming that with the increase in hunters, uh, which we just hit on, do you think, uh, whether from hunting pressure or wolves, which you already also touched on, that elk respond to calling differently now than they did just five to 10 years ago? So again, I think we could go back 20 plus years ago and say more <laughs> definitively yes. But what, what are your thoughts on even that five to 10 year range and how elk respond to calling in that time frame? You know, it's, it's so difficult because I've hunted Colorado and elk respond differently in Colorado than they do in Idaho. And I've hunted Wyoming and they respond differently there. I've hunted, you know, on the, the coastal range of Oregon and they respond differently. So it's hard to, to say, it's worse now or it's better now. I think in my mind, wolves probably have the most effect. And the reason why is I think hunting pressure, by the time that the elk have gone through the winter and the spring and the summer, they don't remember hunting pressure from the year before. So it's not like they're getting call shy by the end of the season from season to season. You know, they might be more call shy at the end of the season. They were at the beginning of the season just from being chased for three or four weeks continually if there's a lot of hunting pressure. But, you know, by the time the next season comes around, I don't think that they're they're remembering, oh, we've got to be call shy from the get-go here and getting harder and harder to call. I just, I haven't seen that. Wolves, though, are something that the elk deal with every day. And I think that the, you know, the elk do react to that in a way that makes them a little harder to call and, and makes them less vocal. So I would say yes to the natural predators, the wolves, uh, but I'd probably say I haven't noticed a, a decrease in uh, our ability to call in elk or elk's vocalization in the last five or ten years. That's, that surprises me. Yeah. yeah. Could you elaborate on some of the differences? You, you know, you kind of mentioned, you obviously mentioned several states, but take uh, just to pick two because they're easy over the counter ones, Colorado and Idaho. Like, what are some of the differences? And you don't have to stick to those states, but elaborate on some of those differences you see in responsiveness in different states. Yeah. And it's it, Colorado is a, a weird animal because where we hunted, it was hard to get into. It wasn't your traditional, you know, eight to 12,000 foot hunting area uh, as far as elevation. It was, it wasn't, it was kind of off the, off the radar. Uh, you had to get back in there a ways. There was some private land um, backed up against it, which ended up being kind of a nuisance because that was the elk's escape route every day was to go into the private. But the elk were vocal down there, you know, where we were. They were very vocal. It wasn't hard to get a response, but there were so many elk that it was harder to, to get their attention and call them in. You literally had to just stay right on their tail and basically initiate that conversation with one elk and keep hammering on him going 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 and then finally get his attention and, and call him in it just took a lot more effort and a lot more uh, mobility uh, i know other places in colorado you know can't even get elk to respond you might get just a bedded bugle in the morning and and that's all you hear so it does vary from place to place i think idaho and obviously i live here and have lived here my whole life so i'm more accustomed to it and more comfortable with it. But in Idaho, it just really seems like the elk are elk and, you know, you'll get into pockets where there are wolves where they won't bugle as much, but man, the elk here just, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, the demographics, the, the bull, to cow ratios, um, the availability of cows for the bulls, but the bulls just seem to be so much more responsive here that once you initiate a conversation with them, you've got their attention and, and they'll focus on you and you can, you can try to call them in. Whereas Colorado, it seems like it's a little bit harder in a lot of those areas. And I think it has a lot to do with just the elk population is higher. Um, the bulls are able to to round up cows and not have to be very vocal. Uh, whereas here, I think the bulls do a lot more roaming looking for, for a couple cows. No, that's good insight. I appreciate that. What's, um, you mentioned the elk, um, 
to simplify what you said there about the season, essentially forgetting hunting pressure by next season um, to some extent. And so, you know, you often hear elk being call shy. And as you said, maybe that's later in the season after they've been pressured for three or four weeks. Do you think that if elk are quiet early, that's just more a matter of behavior, not hunting pressure, not educated elk. That's just more a matter of um, essentially, you know, that rut, that pre-rut period not fully kicked in yet where the bulls are as vocal themselves. Totally. Yep. And there, it's funny because, you know, we'll get into bulls just screaming their heads off. Like last year, the bull Donnie shot, there were three bulls in that Canyon bugling all day and they were bugling like it was September 24th, just firing off on their own and not just little weak bedded bugles. And it was 10 o'clock in the morning when we got on them at first and they were bugling. Um, but then there's other years, you know, September 10th, they still haven't turned on yet. It's, they're still, uh, just not talking much. I think it has a lot to do, uh, more so with, uh, the heat, the weather, if it's really hot and really dry, uh, the elk just aren't going to be as active and they aren't going to be thinking about the rut as far ahead as they would if it was colder, you know, getting cooler mornings and um, just more conducive weather because they do, they spend a lot of energy. And when it's hot like that, they just, they're going to rut. But uh, I think the weather plays a big part in how early they start rutting. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's changed a lot. I think over, maybe that's one of the things in the last five or 10 years, probably a little longer than that, but, it seems like the rut is being more spread out. You know, we aren't getting just a concentrated rut for seven to 10 days. Uh, we're getting bulls that, you know, herd bulls that are with cows the end of August. And last year, October 24th, we called in elk that, you know, there were bulls with the, with the herd still rutting on public land, which is always such a weird thing. Uh, but it just seems like, you know, between the second rut and it seems like maybe the, the rut itself is spreading out a little bit and not focused on that third and fourth week of September like it was. Yeah, I experienced that last year, literally opening day, got into bulls screaming their head, their faces off and fighting, and then last day of the season, same deal. It was completely uh, spread out for me. Do you have uh, any thoughts as to why that might be, Corey? I don't. I've always felt that you know, the, the calves being born in the spring, they have to be born at a certain time uh, to protect them from predators, to make sure that it's not, you know, winter is behind them. So they aren't born uh, when temperatures are going to get really cold and there's a heavy snowfall. So I was, you know, just backtracked from that and thought, well, they've, they've got to rut about this time. Um, but looking at it now, I, you know, I think there's more science to it. The moon phase, I think, plays a big part in triggering the estrus cycle of the cows, uh, the availability of light uh, that enters through their through the cow's pupil. Um, those things, I think, are are scientifically what drives that. I think, you know, we've seen on years where there's a full moon right about that fall equinox. The so fall equinox is usually September 21st, 22nd, somewhere in there. On years when there's a full moon right around there, uh, you could argue that there's more light coming into the cow's pupil. So the estrus cycle is going to be delayed by a few days till that moon starts to wane a little bit and less light is, is coming in there and it's more balanced. So the fall equinox is the day when the daylight hours are equal to the, the darkness hours. And scientifically, they say that is what triggers the the estrus cycle in the cows. And, you know, I think if there's no moon, then we could potentially see the rut starting a little earlier. If there's full moon starting a little bit later, but that's been going on forever. So I don't, you know, it's, it's not like we're starting to see a change here because of any, any changes in light or fall equinox or anything. I don't know what would, what would cause it to become more widespread, you know, hunting pressure, I don't think so. I've been in places where there is, you know, there's no hunting pressure because hunting's not allowed and the rut will drag on. I mean, they'll start bugling um, first part of September and they'll rut clear into the end of October there naturally. So I don't think hunting pressure is causing them to, to spread out. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if maybe management, maybe uh, humans getting involved in, in management and being able to more closely manage 
the numbers, the population of, of elk might have something to do with it. I, hmm. I'm just talking, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here and speculating without, yeah. uh, without any, anything concrete. Yeah. Um, hmm. You mentioned the moon, Corey. I know you guys typically through Elk 101 have like a, uh, an article that you update each year. Um, I'm sure that for some listeners hearing about the moon and fall equinox, they're going to go look at the calendar. Can you just like touch on what things are looking like here for this September? Uh, what some of your thoughts are with how the moon phases is falling through September? Yeah, this, this year is probably about as good as it can get from a moon phase, fall equinox, um, elk season standpoint. And the reason for that, so we'll go back and touch on the fall equinox real briefly. Um, if that is the trigger for the estrus cycle, that's basically the trigger for the rut. And that means cows are coming into estrus. The bulls are focused on breeding. They're going to be more vocal. They're going to be more active. They're going to be easier to to locate for longer during the day. Uh, a lot of things that, you know, that 20th, 21st, 22nd of September are kind of the, the trigger. And when we look at that week, that's kind of the week when everybody says the elk were the most active. Uh, just a lot of positive things going on if you're an elk hunter that week. I personally like to hunt the, the week before that leading up to it because for calling elk especially, that's going to be, you're going to be, uh, in a better position to call those the bulls, especially because they're fighting, they're establishing dominance. Once they get into the the full peak rut, they're focused on breeding and they've got their harems established for the most part. Uh, They're trying to protect their harems and stay away from other bulls. They don't want to fight and take the chance of losing. So once that peak rut kicks in, it can be more difficult to, to call in elk. So I like the dates, you know, typically from the the 12th to the 21st, somewhere in there for calling elk. And if that coincides with the new moon, so you don't have any, you know, it's just dark at night, the elk can't rut, they can't fight as much during the night, that forces them to do it during the day, which is conducive for for when we want to hunt them. And this year is just absolutely the best. It goes from basically a sliver of a waning moon on the 12th to no moon on the 17th to a sliver of a waxing moon on the 22nd. So you basically have the 12th to the 22nd with an ideal moon phase. I'd even back up and say the 10th through the 24th um, with ideal moon phase, which those land in those fall equinox dates uh, for as far as weather, usually by about the 10th, you're starting to get some cooler mornings uh, you aren't dealing with sometimes that last week, you know, the 23rd through the 30th, we'll get snowstorms and it'll be stormy for three or four days and it'll shut the elk down. So, yeah, anytime between the 10th and 24th this year, I think is going to be just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Dang. Getting me all pumped up to be out there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had an interesting question um, from someone who was newer going on their first elk hunt and said, do you suggest waking up in the middle of the night to bugle uh, and locate elk if you're backpacking in and sleeping in an area where you hope to be near elk? If you do get a response in the middle of the night, what would an action plan be for the next day? I wouldn't. I mean, I I need sleep. If I yeah. set an alarm to wake myself up and bugle at an elk in the middle of the night, You know, it's just, I I don't, we get woken up a lot of times in the middle of the night by an elk that's bugling. I think if they're going to bugle, there's a good chance they're going to do it on their own. So Mm. uh, oftentimes we'll hear elk bugle during the middle of the night and make a mental note. There's an elk over on the ridge across from us. We'll get up in the morning and see if it's still there. Uh, But I, yeah, middle of the night waking up purposely to to call it an elk isn't something I would do or or even recommend. Several questions as always. I mean, you know, one of the struggles of hunting elk is first finding elk, right? And uh, that always just comes up again and again in different ways. Um, One of the questions that came up, it says, how do you know if you should stick it out in an area or know when to pull the plug? Specifically on my last hunt, I was seeing a lot of sign, but couldn't seem to find the elk. In a situation like that, how long do you hunt before moving on? Um, and he went on to say specifically he was archery season in the Northern Rockies. So again, just kind of that whole idea of 
you're there, you're in a spot, you're seeing some sign. He didn't say quite how fresh it was. Maybe you can hit on uh, what to look for in terms of freshness, but just that whole that whole struggle. Um, you're in an area for a couple of days. You're maybe seeing some sign, maybe not hearing a ton. Do you pull the plug? Do you stick it out? What do you do? Uh, and again, no right answer, but help us like think through some of those things. For sure, yeah, and that's it's always hard, and it's it's hard for me. I think I take for granted just that I've been hunting so long that I know what sign I'm looking for. And when we say you know look for fresh rubs, look for fresh tracks, look for fresh scat, whatever it is we take that for granted because there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, interpretation in some of that. So, um, and it changes from week to week. If I, if I was to say, go out and look for fresh rubs and somebody was hunting the third week of the season and they get into a place where the bull spent the last week of August by himself before he started thinking about the rut, when he shed his velvet, he's rubbing his antlers a couple times a day there's 20 trees in this tiny little diameter area where that bull's rubbed them up and down. There's still, you know, the bark's on the ground. It's still yellow, hasn't dried up yet. They're going to get all excited and think I'm in fresh sign. There's no way I can leave this area. This bull has tore this place up. He's in here somewhere. But the reality is third week of September, he might be 12 miles away. He might've, you know, that might've been his bedroom where he went after he split up from the bachelor group. And then he might have went 12 miles to find the cows and not even be in that area. So uh, understanding the difference between what the bulls are doing that last week of August when they rub versus what they're doing during the rut when they're rubbing and looking for those rubs versus the the late August rubs. Um, tracks, knowing what's a, a fresh, fresh track and not just a, well, it looks pretty fresh. It's in the mud. You know, it looks like it's within the last week or so. Uh, if you're seeing tracks from that morning where the dirt is still moist and kicked up, that's a fresh track and, and maybe you don't give up on that area. Uh, so those, those things are important, but I think the, the bottom line for me is I want to call in the elk. And if I'm hiking, even if there's fresh sign in that area, if I hike a couple days and I haven't got a response at all, I'm moving. There, there's no reason for me to stay there. I'm looking for a bugle. And if I'm not getting them there, even if the elk are there, I've got to move. And I don't, you know, I think that finding elk is the hardest part of hunting elk. And I don't want to waste a whole bunch of valuable time finding the elk. I want to be able to maximize that efficiency in finding them. And that usually means going to another area and keep hopping, uh, being mobile and hopping from area to area until I find the elk. Once I find them, then I can start hunting them. That's one one modification I think I've made over the last five years is is picking country that I'm not so vested in, right? Like it, it used to be like backpack five, six miles into this canyon. And if, you know, you spend two days in there and the elk weren't there, then you're all the way back out. Now I've kind of looked for more country that I can get into and just kind of side hill and cover, you know, five, ten miles in a day. And then there's kind of an easy exit route if you're not getting into elk. It's definitely a... Yeah, I think strategy I've been talking with Corey over the years, I've kind of picked up and, and modified and it's, uh, seems to be working pretty well. Yeah. And there's, you know, I mean, there's a place for bivy hunting and going in eight or 10 miles and putting all your eggs in that basket. But like you said, if you get back in there and, and somebody else moves into that little base and you're hunting and it's just not big enough for a group of five or six yeah. hunters, or if wolves move in there, you spent three quarters of a day getting in there. You've got another three quarters of a day picking up and, and hiking out. That's a, I mean, you've lost some valuable time there. And if you're able to, to base camp or truck camp and hit different areas every day, you're going to find where the elk are being mobile. You go and go and go. And it's all of a sudden like, okay, we found the pocket of elk. Now we can hunt them for two or three days. And if uh, things go wrong or the elk move out or somebody else moves in or they quit bugling, whatever it is, you get in the truck and go 10 miles the other direction and find another pocket of elk. And it's just, I think from an efficiency standpoint, it's hard to, hard to argue that uh, bivy hunting would be more efficient than, than road hunting, I guess, if you wanted to call it that. Mm -hmm. There's a, a related question that kind of came up um, in terms of how you approach new country and uh, you both just hit on it a little bit and I think some points, but again, just would love to hear elaborate. And the, the question was when headed into new country, how specific are you with your plan of attack for how you will cover ground in that new area? Do you line out a path ahead of time to move through that country? 
Do you identify some key pre-scouted waypoints you want to check out? Do you head in with a primary goal of just chasing sign or bugles? So basically kind of getting at like, (laughs) I want to cover this country. Am I very strategic with like, logistically, here's the best way to physically move and cover the country either by glassing or calling or what have you, or I'm heading into this general direction and these couple of little pockets or spot looks good. Let me bounce around and go check those out. Like what, what are your thoughts on essentially covering new country? Yeah. As you, as you were reading each of those scenarios, you know, as far as do you have a, a path that you mark ahead of time or do you chase the sign and bugles? And I was answering yes, yes, yes. Yeah. To all of that. Cause it, <laughs> it really is. I I'm very detailed in areas that I want to check out. Um, but not necessarily, I want to be on this ridge right here. You know, it's basically, hey, this basin looks really good. There's got to be elk that are moving through it or bedding in it. I think the easiest way to access it, knowing that the thermals are coming down, would be to start at this point and make our way up this ridge, knowing that we're going to be able to bugle over in here. So pretty specific as far as what we want to do, but not necessarily how we want to do it. So, you know, we want to start here and get up to here at some point. Uh, that's about as detailed as we get. And then once we hit the ground, it's, it's just looking for bugles. And I mean, we're, we're wanderers out there. We really are. It's just looking for the features that are going to give us the best access to the most country. And, you know, you'll get on a little finger ridge and you realize there's blowdowns all over it and it's thick and there's no trails on it. And you're just wasting your time there. We're going to get off that and get on a main ridge and, try to cover some country and knowing that we might not bump into any elk as we're hiking. Uh, we might not see a whole lot of sign, but we're able to bugle and broadcast bugles into a lot more country locating an elk and then making a plan to, to approach it. So I think to answer that in a nutshell, I'm going into a, an area that I'm interested in, but not necessarily a specific spot that I'm interested in. And then I do have a, a bit of a game plan as far as how to most, uh, get the most out of that area and maximize my time in that area to cover it as effectively as we can. Uh, but not definitely not drawing a line and saying, I'm going to walk up this Ridge and I'm going to cut over here and go under this patch of trees. And then up through here, I, I definitely don't get that detailed. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, I mean, you covered it well there, but there was a question on making the best use of your time when going into a new area. And I think what you hit on is important. And it's a lesson. I think I've learned the hard way of what you said, Corey, you get into, certain areas that maybe you, you didn't anticipate this, but you find yourself stuck in blowdown. And there's been years where we've just treaded through that, right? Like you're in it all of a sudden. All right, we were headed this direction. Let's just be stubborn and keep going. And then you just find yourself in a mess versus taking the time to get in that, realize it's it's not going to be helpful. It's not efficient. Um, what's a better way to back out of this, you know, cover new country and adapt the plan versus being so stubborn on headed a certain direction and then, finding yourself in a mess. That's a definitely a lesson that I've learned the hard way. Yeah. And with the, you know, the advent of mobile devices that have mapping services and features on them, it's changed all of that. Cause you are able to look at it and be like, Oh man, we're in a mess here. Look at the satellite imagery of this area. There's it's brushed for the next 600 yards. Let's, let's drop down and hit this Ridge and go up around it. And so and we didn't have that growing up. It was basically you, you push and you push and you push and you realize, man, that whole hillside's bad. But you had to experience it to to know that. And I think now, you know, even beforehand, you can get on Google Earth and look at it and say, man, that's a thick hillside. We don't we want to make sure and avoid that one. We don't want to walk up that because we're going to waste time and energy. So that mm-hmm. that uh, remote scouting, the e-scouting is so important. Questions on basically essentially using pressure to your advantage and adapting to that. What are what are some ways to think through that, Corey? Um, again, you can pull from personal experiences or stories there, just things that guys should think through. If they're headed into an area, maybe it's their plan A, and we've talked plenty of times about having multiple plans and being able to adapt and have backups to your backups, but um, really ways on strategically uh, looking at hunting pressure and using that to your advantage. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I'd like to avoid hunting pressure at all costs. And unfortunately, it's just not possible all the time. You know, they're the old 
thing we used to always say, you know, just go in farther. Or if you go a mile off the road, you eliminate 90% of the hunters. I think that's changed a bit. You know, if you go in a mile off the road, you 90% of the people might be there now. Uh, people, I think, are, are taking it more seriously. They're working harder than, than they used to. So the reality is there's going to be pressure. You're going to have to deal with other hunters. Um, for me, my goal is always get away from the other hunters. And so I kind of have an idea, hey, they're, they're on this ridge over here. It sounds like they're going that way. I pretty much turn 180 degrees and, and go away from them. But when you get into, especially like a general rifle season, there's just, there's people out there and they're on every ridge and there's gunshots going off and the elk react to that. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard because you hear somebody, they go out and they rifle hunt and they don't see an elk the whole time. They're like, man, the elk just disappeared. The elk, you know, they, they went somewhere. I think it's important to learn where they go. And once you learn that, I think you're going to get into a, a lot of elk because elk are always going to seek refuge. If there's pressure, if there's danger, whatever it is, they're going to go someplace where they feel safe. And if an elk feels safe when there's a lot of pressure, you can bet it's not going to be easy for us to get into. And so I think looking for those areas, if there's a lot of pressure, you've got to be willing to go places other people aren't. You've got to think a little outside the box that, man, that basin looks beautiful. It should be filled with elk. Well, that's what everybody else is thinking and everybody else is in there. The elk aren't going to be where it's beautiful and where you, where you think the elk should be. Um, and so recognizing that if there's pressure, I really think the elk get concentrated when there's pressure. They just, they all end up in those, those safety areas. And if you can find that, I think, uh, you're, you're going to be in good shape as far as finding elk and having an opportunity to, to hunt the elk. So I don't know if that's really using pressure to your advantage, but if you know where elk go, once they get pressured, uh, when there's pressure, that can be a huge huge advantage because it will push the elk into those areas where other people aren't as willing to go. Yeah, we, uh, in the mule deer series, we wrapped up here on the podcast recently. I think it was when we were talking, uh, with Dione, if I'm remembering right, Steve, he was, he was talking about basically that exact concept for mule deer. Um, especially as you get into October, even for mule deer of, you know, it's, it's easy to look at what looks like ideal country and what, we as hunters see as ideal country either to hunt or to glass from or you know just those spots that look perfect right there our eye is drawn to them he was saying that same thing of well everybody else looking at google earth and on x or what have you is going to think the same thing right and so he was talking about get into the places that um you know he was relying on glassing for mule there that are difficult to glass um get in and think like that mule deer who's going to be pressured and where's a good spot that he can go and live and what, what does that look like and target those areas? Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that for elk? And you can even relate that to rifle seasons because we had some questions there. Um, even specifically guys talking about locating elk mid to late October when, you know, it's after the rut or the peak of the rut, but it's kind of before their true wintering, um, you know, and rifle seasons come into play. So just, elaborate more on um some of the thoughts there on on locating elk at that time of year because it can be difficult totally and i think that's probably the hardest time hardest time to hunt elk is that last part of october into uh, the middle of november the end of november you know when the, when the weather really changes and the snow sets in the elk have to come out they have to come out of those those safety pockets to find feed uh but man, that last part of October, once the bulls leave the cows, especially the herd bulls, they can be really hard to find. They can, you know, they just go and kind of tuck themselves in a little draw somewhere in a bunch of brush. And there's a little spring there. They've got water. They've got the feed they need. And they just lay there and, and recover and, and seek refuge there. So it is one of the most difficult times to, to hunt elk, I think. Uh, things that you look for are just just that. Where are these little pockets where an elk can go to just lay down and be left alone? And that's what those bulls are looking for. Then they're they just want to be left alone, and that means from other elk, from hunting pressure, everything. And so finding those little pockets, and I think you really have to learn to read sign and tell the difference between a bull track and a cow track and fresh tracks. Uh, you've got to cover a lot more country. You've got to be in places where you can use your binoculars and be patient and just sit on a, on a knob and be able to glass 
just this tiny little open hillside next to a little bench or a little open ridge and just catch a glimpse of that bull as he comes out 20 minutes before dark to feed or first thing in the morning be there and, and ready to glass. But you just don't have a whole lot of time during that time of year to hunt during the day. They're just, they're not as active. They aren't moving around as much. And that makes it a lot harder to, to find them because they are going most of the time to those thicker areas where it's going to be harder to glass them and it's going to be harder to, to find them and they're not going to be vocal. What do you do midday? I, like that time of year, as you mentioned, a lot of times they're going to be there early in the morning, late at night. Those last um, or first and last bits of shooting light there is when you might catch them and feed that big chunk of the middle of the day like what are your thoughts on making the most of that without obviously blowing up an area but at the same time trying to give yourself some sort of opportunity yeah and that's patience is not my uh, my strong suit so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to say hey the elk are probably gonna come out on this open hillside let's just sit here for All 10 day, hours yeah knowing nothing's gonna come out until the last 20 minutes of dark so I, I do. I'm mobile. I, I keep moving, knowing I'm probably not going to find elk, but I'm looking for sign. I'm looking for pockets. I'm looking for rubs from during the rut for the next archery season. Uh, I'm looking for sheds. I'm doing anything <laughs> to occupy my, my time. The good news is by that time of the year, the, the daylight hours have decreased enough that it's it's manageable, but I'll definitely take a nap midday during rifle season and you know go back to camp whatever it is. So it's, but I, I do, I like to you know, just hike around and learn new areas, look for wallows, look for anything that's going to be beneficial for, for future hunts in that area. Yeah. But as far as hunting, yeah, those, especially, you know, that late October into the middle of November, looking for a bull middle of the day, especially a, a more mature bull is, that's a pretty tall order to try to fill. Yeah. I know you've had plenty of experiences where the elk themselves are vocal in October, but if you're going into a hunt, um, what is your calling strategy? Like say mid October, um, are you just kind of getting a feel for the vocality of the elk? Are you going in there cautious? Uh, how, what is, what changes basically, right? In terms of your approach before you really know if the elk themselves are being vocal yet. Yeah, it's, you know, calling is such a, a fun part of hunting and it's, it really makes it easier. I think, you know, I just, when I'm sitting in a tree stand hunting bears over a bait or hunting late season mule deer or antelope in a blind, the first thing that comes to mind is I wish they called. I wish I could just call and know if they were close. And I think with elk hunting, that's, that's really the beauty of it is it really helps be able to locate the elk. And, you know, the, the added benefit during the rut during September is that not only can you locate them, but you can use it to bring them right in close to you to get a shot. Once you get into October and they start tapering off from the rut a little bit, you probably aren't going to be calling them in as, you know, and I, I say that and it definitely has happened and, and it will continue to happen, I hope. But I don't rely on calling the elk in. The good news is typically in October, you're rifle hunting by then. And you don't have to call them in close. So really, I just use calling as a strategy to locate them. And once I locate them, then I go quiet and move in. I'm like, okay, I know there's a bull right over there on that ridge. Let's get in and see if we can spot him. Uh, but I, I use my location bugles much less than I do in September. Uh, and that really comes down to if I get a bull to bugle and somebody else is rifle hunting and they hear that bull bugle, they might be in a position to shoot him from 500 yards away. And, you know, it's not a matter of who gets to it first or uh, who's closest to it in the beginning. It's, it's rifle hunting. And so I don't want to just walk around bugling all the time. Uh, some, you know, rifle hunter might think that we're an elk and I just don't want to mm -hmm. be, uh, be pulling them towards us as during rifle season. And so I, I bugle a lot less. It's just strictly for location. And then once I get them located, I quit bugling and uh, try to slip in there and locate them and shoot them. Is there ever a time for any reason where you're going to any sort of cow call um, during that time of year? Not really. No, it's mostly just location bugles. And, you know, cow calls work to, to get bulls to respond. But I've had more luck during that October time frame, especially as bulls are starting to move off by themselves. 
they just get, you know, they'll still bugle a little bit and they'll, they'll communicate and respond. Um, but they aren't really interested in cows anymore for the most part. Corey, I know that, um, you know, the resources you put out with the University of Elk Honey and obviously uh, podcasts, like just all over the place, you're always talking um, with hunters with vast number of experiences, um, guys who are starting to elk hunt, guys who've been doing it for years. I know for you, there's reoccurring things. Um, you know, just one of the general questions that came up was from a guy who's going out west for the first time this year and said, what are the top three things I need to know or think about? which most first-time elk hunters wouldn't normally think of. Um, so plenty of you know first-time elk hunters are thinking about e-scouting and finding elk and all that. But is there, you know, he specifically said the things a first-time elk hunter wouldn't normally think of. So is there anything besides those main recurring topics that like immediately come to mind of, man, more, more beginners should be thinking of, you know, these few things? Yeah, I think... You know, thermals are, are the thing that I preach and just understanding thermals, understanding what thermals are doing throughout the day, understanding how the elk on a daily basis are using the thermals. When the thermals change, the elk change. You know, the elk don't have the same routine on a morning when the thermals, there's a storm front coming in and now you have wind blowing side hill instead of coming down the mountain. The elk don't, don't act the same. They don't go in bed necessarily in the same place. And so just understanding thermals, understanding how to use thermals to your advantage, understanding how to how to overcome how the elk use thermals to their advantage. Uh, I think that's that's probably the number one thing. I think for somebody coming from back east, they might not have a, a concept of thermals, of actual, you know, the diurnal thermals we have here in the mountains where it changes and the, the wind pulls uphill during the middle of the day and it comes down in the evening and in the mornings. Um, just, you know, and it seems, and it really is basic, but if you don't have that, that knowledge and that understanding and a good grasp on it, it can really make the difference between filling a tag and not. So that's definitely top of the list. Um, I think physical conditioning is important. I think a lot of people come out and, uh, aren't as prepared, you know, that I, that's a really common thing that I hear after somebody comes out. And it killed us. Those mountains were so steep and it was such big country and the elk cover it like it's nothing. And if we aren't prepared to cover it uh, to some degree to, to try to keep up with them and try to find them, it's going to really hamper our, our ability to be successful. Uh, a third one would probably be just um, not getting stuck in a rut, just not you know, you, you come from a long way away, you've done your research, you've said, I'm going to go to this trailhead, I'm going to hunt this area. But it might not be, you know, it might not hold eight days worth of hunting, but you don't have anywhere else to go. You don't have the confidence to go and look somewhere else. You, uh, you end up spending all eight days there and you don't see an elk, you don't hear an elk bugle the whole time. And I think just being willing to pick up and go somewhere else, even if you didn't do any e-scouting ahead of time, just get in the truck and drive and look for something that looks good and get out and take a hike there. Some of the best areas that I've, I've stumbled into have been from just that, that we get, we go on a morning hunt and we get back trucks like, man, I don't know what to do. We've, we've hit those three areas I've thought of. I don't know where the elk could be. And it's like, you know, what, let's just, there's a road up here. I've never been up. Let's drive down here and drive up that road. And having hunted Idaho for, you know, 35 years or whatever, there are still roads that I've never driven. And it's amazing how one afternoon, middle of the day, we take a drive. And it's like, oh, look at that ridge over there. There's got to be a bull bedded on it. We get out and the bull answers at one o'clock from the truck from that road. And, you know, from then on, that's that's one of our little hot spots we go to. So I think just not not getting locked into an area and being too timid to to leave that area, being willing to go and, and explore. It's helpful. It's reassuring too that you just said sometimes you don't know what to do and you don't know where the elk are. I was glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> that probably happens a lot more than I care to admit. <laughs> oh man. No, I, I think that that's really, really good points. Again, uh, just myself, my own history. I've, I've been there, done that. You know, you, coming from out of state, you know, on previous hunts and putting time into e-scouting, 
you want to make that work, right? Like you had this plan in your head and these hopes for this area and you get there and after a few days, it, it's a bust. Um, it, you're somewhat like, you feel like it, you have that investment, right? Like you spent the time to check it out and all that and it's not panning out. And so sometimes you have that like sunk cost fallacy, right? Like I've put so much into this, whether it's now getting in here physically or it's preseason scouting, but this is where I put in the work. This is what I should stick with. And sometimes it's just better to realize the sign's not here, the elk aren't here, whatever the case is, and it's better to move on. Yeah, we, we definitely check a lot more areas off the list than we uh, than we confirm or put on the list during elk season for sure. Corey, man, always good to catch up. Um, you know, go ahead. I'm sure many guys uh, have resources and have already tuned into a lot of what you have going on. But tell folks if they're interested in learning more about places they can go check out, obviously the University of Elk Hunting course, but any other resources, be it podcast, video, what have you, that you could point folks to because this time of year, guys are just soaking information up and learning and trying to get out there and make it happen. Definitely. Yeah. No, the University of Elk Hunting, uh, the online course is always a, a great resource. Uh, our YouTube channel, Elk 101 on YouTube, we've got some new fresh content that's going to be coming out uh, between now and September. Got a lot of good stuff there. Some educational, some, uh, some hunts that we haven't shown before. Uh, good stuff coming there. Uh, Instagram, you know, if you're, if you're into social media, Elk 101's got a strong social media presence and uh, some good content there. And then uh, on, on YouTube, if you're there, if you haven't seen it, the Destination Elk video series, either from last year or the season before, just some great content there as far as day to day following along with us learning as we learn, you know, learning from our mistakes. A lot of times we'll stop right in the middle of it and, and point out the strategy that we used or the strategy we should have used. And so there's good, uh, good content, good educational value, as well as some pretty exciting elk hunting action in the in those series well there you have it guys don't forget to check out the university of elk hunting online course and the discount code exo20 that's xo20 there is that link in the show description as well as links to other resources from Corey and great elk hunting content that's out there thanks to Corey for sharing that knowledge with us also, if you have any questions for the podcast, any suggestions, anything like that, you can shoot us an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. If you're enjoying the show, we would appreciate a review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this, and tell a friend. Hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>